All right, well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Hope you're doing well, and um, it's good to be all back together in one service and be back in our normal uh, series through the book of Luke. Easter is always a great day, uh, but being honest with you, it's a day that causes me a lot of stress because uh, people expect on that day you got to hit a home run, you got to do the, you know, you got to just do the best you've ever done before, and that's not the way the Spirit works. You can't manufacture that. The Spirit blows on who He's going to blow on, and He moves, and who He's going to move. And, and so uh, I love it when we're just opening up the Bible, making our way through it, and allowing the Lord just to do what He's going to do. And uh, I pray that He would do great things uh, in our hearts today, uh, drawing us to repentance, uh, all of us, um, and having his way uh, with us this day. Um, one of the things that you notice, at, or you're going to notice, as we go through the book of Luke, and if you've uh, read the, the scriptures a good bit uh, in the past, you've got any background in Christianity whatsoever, is that um, wherever Jesus goes, he always draws a crowd. Okay? Wherever he goes, uh, as you look through scripture, he always draws a crowd, like big ones. And so the classic example would just be the feeding of the 5,000. Scripture talks about the fact that, that there are 5,000 men there. So historians uh, all pretty much agree that more than likely there was probably 20,000 people in total there when you take into account women and children as well. 5,000 men, 20,000 people in total. So think Bridgestone Arena completely packed out at the feeding of the 5,000, really 20,000. There's 20,000 people there. So crowds are always... Uh, congregating around Jesus and kind of piggybacking off of Palm Sunday and Easter that we just celebrated, um, you know, the, w when Jesus, um, the triumphal entry, when he entered into J to Jerusalem, there were close to a quarter million people there who had come to celebrate the Passover. So there's 250,000 people in the city of Jerusalem when Jesus comes in and the crowds come out to him, and they're taking their coats off and laying them down, and they're laying down palm branches, and there's just this huge, huge, just huge crowd congregating around him and yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then five days later, this same crowd's yelling, crucify him. They do. He dies. Three days later, he resurrects. For 40 days, he hangs out on the earth, then he ascends back into heaven and tells his disciples all the says, wait in the in this certain room, wait in the upper room till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so when all that is said and done, you've got tens of thousands of people who've been praising him. Then when it's all said and done, do you know how many people are in that upper room? Acts chapter one. 120. So you've got tens of thousands of posies, tens of thousands of superficial Christians, and you have 120 legit ones. And it's that superficiality that John the Baptist, as recorded by Luke in chapter 3 here, is going to attack. Okay, this this text here attacks poses. It attacks superficial. It attacks cultural Christianity. 
And here's kind of a reality for all of us. Every single one of us in here who claim the name of Christ, okay, even those who legitimately claim the name of Christ, because as this chapter is going to make clear, there are those who illegitimately claim the name of Christ. They think they're a Christian, but they're actually not. But even for those who are legitimately followers of Christ, we need to understand that, that we are far, far more affected by cultural Christianity than we realize. Even those of us who are legitimate followers. And we've got to crush that. Because it perverts, it dilutes, and it disguises the true gospel. It, it hides it. And, and that's why some of us in here are just cultural Christians. We're not, in fact, regenerate. We're not, in fact, saved. We walk around in our metaphorical church clothes. And we have the appearance of godliness, but we deny its power. 2 Timothy 3. We're, we're dressed up pseudo-Christians who have just enough Jesus to inoculate us to the real thing. And we don't even realize it. Satan's pulled the wool over our eyes. That's some of us in here. But all of us have at least levels of superficiality. All of us have levels of fake, poser-like cultural Christianity. And the message of Luke 3 all right, that he's going to share with us, he wants us to see the danger of that. He wants to kind of give us a pathway to crush it. And he's going to call for some very serious self-examination. And so the way we're going to make our way through this, Luke chapter 3, if you've got a Bible, there, there should be one around you if you don't, page 557. Uh, but if you're taking notes, the way we're going to make our way through this, I'll just go ahead and throw it out to you right now. We're going to talk about <clears throat> the way that we crush cultural Christianity. Number one, we have to recognize its danger. Number two, we need to repent of our apathy. And number three, we need to behold our God. So number one, recognize its danger. Number two, repent of your apathy. Number three, behold your God. And so let's just jump into it. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Here we go. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so remember, Luke is writing this to a guy named Theophilus in order to give him an orderly account. And so you've got all of these historical markers, all of these people, all of these dates. We know that Augustus Caesar died in August of A.D. Uh, Four, zero, I almost said 2014, 0014, um, and so Tiberius came in to reign at that point. This is 15 years later, so we are around 29 A.D., okay? Annas and Caiaphas are high priests here. Uh, Caiaphas is actually the high priest. Annas is his father-in-law who is deposed by the Romans, and so many of the Jews still kind of view him. That's why, they, in fact, when Jesus is arrested, they take him to Annas before they take him to Caiaphas. Probably more than you wanted to know. Um, but let's keep going. Verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so number one, recognize the danger of cultural Christianity. Because what you've got going on here in this section, specifically verses 7 through 9, what you've got going on is a superficial following of God. You've got these Jews who think that their heritage and who their parents were and, and what they've done and how they've lived and the fact that they are ethnically Jewish is going to save them. Okay, they're cultural Christians. Mama taught Sunday school for 27 years. And daddy was a deacon for 18 years. And after 17 verses of just as I am, I came forward and prayed to receive Christ for the third time. Cultural Christians. So, so because of those things, mama and daddy and, and praying to receive Christ all these different times, I know, I'm, I know me and God are good. Doesn't matter what I do now. Doesn't matter what my life's like. I'm good because of that. Cultural Christianity. And John the Baptist is saying to these guys and and to us who maybe have that background, come on, you are actually the spawn of Satan. That's what he's saying. I'm not making this up. Look at verse 7 again. He opens up his sermon. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, this is his intro, you brood of vipers. So I contemplated introing today by just walking up to people and being, oh, you sons of the devil. Because that's what he's talking about. These Jews, there's no, you know, getting around that. When they speak, when he speaks of the serpent, when he speaks of a viper, all the Jews are thinking Genesis 3. All the, they're thinking Satan. They're thinking devils. And so very much they understand that John has just called them like little Satanists. He's just called them Sons of Satan. And so the very bold thing John's doing here, he pulls no punches. And so in this dialogue, he expects them, once he calls them that, he expects them to kind of start trotting out their heritage and their cultural, superficial religion. We've got Abraham as our father. And so he cuts him off at the pass and is basically like, yes, of course, absolutely, uh, Abraham, like God, will be faithful to Abraham's seed. But your pride has blinded you as to who Abraham's seed really are. It's not every single physical descendant, but it's the people who, like Abraham, repent and believe. That's who are the children of Abraham. And so what he's saying is that the way of forgiveness is open to all flesh, 
by the same path, the path of repentance, the path of Christ, the path that John came to make straight, verse 4, make his path straight, so that, verse 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He's quoting Isaiah 40. All flesh. Like, this is the whole point of John's baptism. He's, he's cleaning up a false idea. See, in, in, in John's day, uh, baptism had come to, uh, it, it had been adopted as a ceremony for Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish. And so they would, the Jews began baptizing Gentiles as a ceremony and as a way of kind of ceremonially um, removing their inherent defilement. This is the way the Jews viewed it. Gentiles are inherently defiled. They're inherently unclean. And so we baptize them as kind of showing what has taken place in their hearts and ceremonially making them clean. So that's kind of what baptism was. And so what made John's practice of baptism so stinging was that he was saying, no, 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 Jews, you need to be baptized too. Everybody needs to be baptized. All of us are unclean. All of us are far from God. All of us need to repent and turn to God. And so he's saying, your Jewishness is no guarantee of of, of God's grace, and non-Jewishness is no hindrance of God's grace. He's telling them, you can't rely on your heritage. You can't rely on your background, on your ethnicity. You've got to be changed in heart for God. You have to repent. And it's the same today. It's not about your heritage. It's not about what mama and daddy did, what grandpa did. It's not about, you know, just church attendance. It's not about, you know, all these different things. It's not about your culture. It's not about the way you were raised. It's about have you personally flung yourself on the mercy of God. Like these culturally Jewish people, they had just enough of the Bible, the Old Testament. They had just enough of it to understand, you know, God's made these promises to Abraham. They, they had just enough to understand that and therefore convince themselves that they were saved. When in fact they were not. And Bible Belt cultural Christianity has done the exact same thing. Well, I prayed a prayer when I was seven years old at VBS. When was the last time you gathered with the church? Well, it, it doesn't matter. I prayed a prayer. Well, how's the gospel affecting your life today? How are you living it out today? Well, it doesn't matter. I prayed a prayer and once saved, always saved. And that's sending people to hell. I try to do more good than I do bad. I got Jesus as my co-pilot. If Jesus is your co-pilot, you need to change something. He doesn't share his throne. He flies the plane. But it's that kind of false thinking, this American Bible Belt superficial Christianity. Prayed the prayer, once saved, always saved. Though the rest of your life is far from God and has no basis in the in in in, in um, anything that Jesus taught, that kind of thinking 
that has damaged thousands of our parents and our friends and our children and maybe some of us. False understanding where we think we're good when we're, we're not. We're blind. We haven't been saved. We haven't swung ourselves in the free mercy and grace of Jesus. And so verse 9 says, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So number one, we need to recognize this danger. When you dilute the gospel, when you pervert the gospel, when you make it easy believism, you're condemning people. Like it is a dangerous, it, it is not loving to tell, it is not loving to see someone's house on fire and refuse to tell them. But it's also not loving to see someone's um, house on fire and, and, and say, hey, your house is on fire, but I, I, I put an extinguisher on it so you're good, but it's actually still going up in flames. Neither of those are loving. You've got to recognize the danger that cultural Christianity creates. And number two, here's, here's where we start crushing it. So number one, we recognize it. Number two, what do we do about that? Number two, repent of your apathy. Repent of your apathy. Look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8 again. Repent of your apathy. Verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. And so number two, repent of your apathy. Okay, that, that's what verse 8 is getting after when he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That repentance is more than just being sorry. It's an altering of what we rely on, what we hope in, what we're counting on for salvation. Repentance is where we agree with God uh, about, about our sin, we grieve it, we decide to leave it, and we flee to Christ to cleanse it. And so repentance, you need to hear this, repentance leads to action. Repentance leads to action. Now, action does not lead to repentance, right? Action without repentance leads to pride. It leads to self-exaltation. But true repentance, when it happens in our hearts, it will always lead to action. And so the answer here in verse 10, what then shall we do? John the Baptist is not just telling him to go do more and try harder. He's saying first, verse 8, bear fruit, all right, in keeping with repentance. He's saying repent and then live that out. Repentance will lead to action. You repent and then live that out. A life of continual repentance 
stands in stark contrast to cultural Christianity. Like where repentance is little, where, where like just you personally, think about yourself for a minute, where repentance is little, cultural Christianity and or just being lost, being a non-believer, is strong. Where, where repentance is little, cultural Christianity is strong. And where repentance is much, cultural Christianity is losing its. Because you recognize you, you have no hope but to fling yourself on Christ. And so in your life, is, is repentance little? Does it happen little? Or does it happen much? It's a barometer of your walk with God. And so many of you know that Sarah is in Germany with Haley. They're visiting her sister, uh, Sarah's sister. Um, and so they left last Tuesday. They will be back this coming Friday. So if I look with line, circles under my eyes, you can understand why. Um, but they're over there. They're visiting and whatnot. And, and they're seeing all kinds of awesome things. They saw the tallest church in the world. Um, yesterday they went and visited um, the castle that Walt Disney, um, you know, like based his castle on, where he got kind of uh, his vision for that and where he got his inspiration for that. But if I were in Germany, the one thing that I would want to go see, and I don't know if they're going to get a chance to travel-wise or not, but I would want to go to Wittenberg, and I would want to see the church in Wittenberg where on October the 31st, 499 years ago, 1517, a monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the church door uh, and, and ignited the powder keg that had been building for a long time and the, and the, and the, and the um, Reformation began. But these 95 theses, we hear theses and we think like they're these super long things. No, they're basically like sticky notes, Okay. And the very first one, the very first one he put up there says, all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. Every aspect of life is repentance. Right? The Christian life is the daily reality of, of submitting and seeing that we are sinners and that we are in need of forgiveness. And so we repent. We agree with God about our sin. We grieve it, we decide to leave it, and we flee to Christ, cleanse it, and we bear fruit in keeping with it. All, right? All of life, every moment is doing this. And so if you're not living a life of continual repentance, if you just feel like if you're not, you, you either are just haven't ever realized that you have a sin problem, or you just don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't have any big, maybe, huge, glaring sins. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't, you know, done this or that, right? But you aren't examining yourself. And so if you don't have a life of continual repentance where it's ever increasing, and you just kind of feel like there's no sin in you, or if there is, it's just really trivial, you're pretty close to being perfect. Now, those folks around you, you can see plenty in their lives, and they're maybe blind to it. You don't think you might be blind to your own. 
If that's you, I'm terrified for you. First John says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Like the more you walk with Christ, the more aware of your sin you should be. And your sin should be decreasing. Like as you walk with Christ, you should be sinning less and be grieved of it more. You should be sinning less and be aware of it more. You should be sinning less but repenting more as your eyes are exposed, not just to glaring big sins, but to the ones that we would label smaller ones that are actually the seeds of the bigger ones. So we should sin less, but be aware of it more, and it should change the way we live. And so Luke kind of is gonna, about to take a grid and lay, lay a grid of two big things over our lives and tell us to examine ourselves on the basis of these two things, to see if our repentance is legitimate. See if we're walking in true repentance, in fruit, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And so those two big things, this grid that he lays over our life, these two big um, categories are number one, how we view our stuff, okay, our money, our possessions, our food, and how we view sex. Those are the two big things he's about to lay across and we're going to use as a grid to examine our lives to see if we are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay? Possessions and sex. And so look at verse 11 again with me real quick. And he answered them, we're talking about possessions here, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And so when a, when a person turns to rely on God's mercy, flings themselves on God's mercy, right? they can never be the guy who sees someone freezing to death and says, thank you, Lord, that I've got 17 coats of different assortments and colors at home, and I'm one. It, it can't be someone who sees someone starving and, and, and says, thank you, Lord, that my refrigerator's full and my pantry's full and my freezer's full, and I'm not like that guy. Now, is there thankfulness for the... Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. But we can't be like, praise God, I'm not like that guy. We're changed. Verse 11, again, in bearing fruit that keeps with repentance. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Repentance leads to action. You don't do this and move towards repentance. Repentance produces this. You live out of your repentance. And so are you a generous person? This isn't about, well, if I had more money, I would be generous. Like, do you live generously? It doesn't have to be money. It can be time. It can be anything. Are you generous? Are you giving? Are you giving of yourself? Do you give yourself away to others? Or do you hoard what you have and almost use it to get more? Like, like John says to the multitudes here, it's interesting. He says to the multitudes, give away. But then to the tax collectors and the soldiers, he says, stop taking. So look at verse 11 again. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. 
He's saying, give, give. And then watch this. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false exact accusations and be content with your wages. And so the way that you view money and the way that you view material things speaks vault. Like, is that your treasure? Is that your confidence? Is that what gives you, you know, well, I've got storehouses and I'm good for a dark day. Like, the way you view money, the way you view your resources, even if you view them, they're mine instead of everything's God and I'm just stewarding it. The way you view it speaks volumes about the legitimacy of your repentance. It's bearing fruit in keeping with repentance or negatively your adherence to cultural Christianity. Superficial Christianity speaks volumes how you view money, possessions as well as how you view sex. So look down to verse 19 for a minute. I'm going to skip ahead for a second. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, that is John, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And and we know from Matthew and Mark that he later had him beheaded, had his head chopped off as part of his sexual deviancy. And so here's the situation. Herod had an affair with his brother's wife. And so Herod divorced his own wife His brother's wife divorced his brother. They got married, Herod and Herodias, as she came to be called. And John called them out for this. John said, that is sin, that is wrong. I rebuke you. You need to repent. You need to turn away from this sexual deviancy. And so he did not like what John said, so he locked him up in prison. And then later, watch, watch the deviancy. Later, right, Herod had his new wife's daughter, which was his niece, and now his stepdaughter. Right? Herod has a birthday party, and he has this girl, probably 13 or 14, his niece slash stepdaughter, come out and perform what we'll call a belly dance for for this group of people. And remember, it's his niece slash stepdaughter. And he's so just like kind of beside himself at this dance that he's like, what do you want? Name it and I'll give it to you. Anything you want, what is it? So her mama had told her to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so she she does. Now, here's what you need to hear. No sane person, no matter how much they like this 
belly dance. We chop a dude's head off. It's this is what sexual deviancy does to the human brain. You start with one thing, you start down this dark path, you dabble in pornography a little bit, and then this kind isn't enough for you anymore. So you go to this kind. And this kind is not enough for you anymore. You go to this. And that, and that, and that, and that. It is a dark place that will lead you to a very, very, very dark place that you never intended to go to in the beginning, but that's the way it works. So I'm not saying that you're going to wind up chopping some guy's head off, if you, or, but I am telling you it's going to go dark and much darker than you ever intended. That's why Jesus may, in fact, not be joking when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That may not be a joke. It's a big deal. And that's why Scripture talks about it so much. But how you view your stuff, how you view material things, money, how you view your neighbor, how you view your coworker, how you view your job, how you view all how you view sex says a whole lot. Like lay those things over your life. And evaluate yourself. Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Is the fruit of character, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control being produced in your life? And then that fruit of character leading to fruit of action. Is my repentance real or is it apathetic and therefore not real? I can't answer this one. You've got to answer this question. Am I bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Am I living out what I've been what I've been called to live? Am I following Christ? So number one, we've got to recognize the danger of cultural Christianity. It will damn you to hell. Number two, we need to repent of our apathy. Right? Repentance always leads to action. And then number three, and this is perhaps the biggest crusher of cultural Christianity. Number three, it's going to sound simple, but number three, behold your God. Like, see him for who he is. For what he's done, for who he is. See him, view him, behold him. Get a, get a bigger view of God than you have. Because he's bigger than the view that you have. And when you get a bigger view, he's bigger than that one too, so get another bigger view. And he's bigger than that one too. Get a bigger view of God. And so uh, with, with Haley and uh, Sarah being in Germany, all right, first spring break, I didn't want, um, you know, Claire and Kira and Eden to not have, you know, she's getting to go to Germany for a spring break. What are we doing? We're staying home with Daddy. So we wanted to do something that was, you know, halfway fun. So we... I took them to, um, I took them down to Heinloch. I took them down to the farm. And we were down there for a couple of days. And we started building a tree house. And we rode the four-wheeler a bunch. And, 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 you know, did some work with the tractor and all kinds of things. Just good, fun stuff that they uh, would enjoy. And we had a good time. And on Friday, we drove back. 
and uh, we had to stop at Chick-fil-A in Dalton to get some Chick-fil-A as we're driving. And, you know, we're driving, we're trying to eat it, and um, Eden started choking on the chicken, like, for real. And so, you know, I had to pull over real quick and, and, and um, get her out and, you know, like, stop the car, get her out of the car. After we did that twice, because she choked again, I was like, fine, we're, we're just going to sit on the side of the interstate, and we're going to finish this daggone chicken, <laughs> and then we're going to drive. And so, as we're parked on 75 North, probably around Ringgold somewhere, um, we're sitting there, and cars are just buzzing by us, and traffic was pretty heavy that day, and... Um, Trucks, you know, transfer trucks are just driving by us, driving by us, driving by us. And, and being the not thinking dad that uh, I can be sometimes, I told the girls, hey, just look out the back window. Imagine, like, what if that truck right there loses control and plows into us? That I kept it going. So here it comes. It's, here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. Bam! We're dead. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, then they started screaming, I don't want to die today. <laughs> and I thought to myself, there's another parenting fail that can go in my book. But seriously, and I've kind of talked about this in before, I've heard David Platt talk about it as well, imagine if that did happen, and we won't, let's not use my kids anymore, let's just say a, a truck hit me, because I don't want to think about that, but if a, if a truck hit me, if it hit me, I'm not going to look the same that I do right now, right, I'm going to be rearranged, and it's going to be of no doing of my own, the truck is going to hit me, and it's going to change me. I'm not going to look the same as I do right now. You get hit by a truck, you get changed. And it's the same thing with God's love. When it hits you, when the gospel hits you, when the glory of God hits you, you cannot not be affected by that. It will change you. And it, not of your own doing. It's going to rearrange you. you it's just going to hit you and change you. Like when you get his life and Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection in your place for your sins as your substitute, something that makes you right with God, not on the basis of anything you've done, but solely what Jesus has done, when you get that, it changes you. You cannot, you will not look the same. You've been run over by the Mack truck of God's love, the Mack truck of the gospel, the Mack truck of who God is, and you get rearranged. That's what I'm talking about when I'm asking you to just behold your God. Like, see him for who he is, and let that again and again and again hit you, run over you, and rearrange you, because it will. Get out of the cultural Christianity that we live in, where we reduce God to this little, you know, lap, um, you know, cat that we can just pet and it's just the way we want it. Let him be who he is. 
God who does not fit in any type of box, in any type of theological system, is much bigger than anything we can imagine. The God who is who seraphim and cherubim, who terrify people, they, are, are, they cover their eyes and refuse to look at God because He's so holy. Isaiah 6. God who calls out stars by name and, and, and brings them into existence and out of existence just by thinking about them. Supernovas and all the galaxies and all the... Behold your God. And who sent Christ for you. Though you don't deserve it because we are all spawns of Satan, broods of viper, sons of the devil. Unclean. And so let's look at some of the words that John uses to describe Jesus. Look at verse 15 with me. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork, this is scary, but it's the Bible. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so John just said Jesus is mighty. Jesus is holy. So holy that John, who Jesus says is the greatest man who ever lived, is not even worthy to have the lowest a responsibility of the lowliest servant of untying the straps of his sandals. John's saying, though he's the greatest person to ever live, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals. He's holy, infinitely so. He says he's mighty. He says he's holy. And he says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to separate wheat and chaff. He's going to separate lambs and goats. One will go into the barn of heaven and the other one will go into the hell of unquenchable fire. And so John has just told us that Jesus is both Savior, he gives the Holy Spirit, and he's judge. And when you view that rightly, it'll start to crush your cultural Christianity because you realize we're not playing a little game here. We're talking eternal heaven and we're talking eternal hell. Eternal consciousness. Torment, not something that I like to talk about, but something that is real. And so for the believer, at the moment of salvation, baptized with the Holy Spirit, all right, what that means is like at the moment you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so when we roll this horse trough in and we baptize someone over here in water, what that is showing is what has already happened in their lives by the Spirit. It's showing that they have already received Jesus as the Lord and Savior. They've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not a, and that happens at salvation, not a subsequent secondary thing. It happens at the moment of salvation. And so what that is, is it's the Holy Spirit. Like water baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality of what the Spirit has already done. That the Spirit has regenerated, that the Spirit has adopted, that the Spirit is sanctifying, that the Spirit has sealed and 
fills them now as a believer. That's what happens at the moment of salvation. You're baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when it says he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, there's some question as to what John was talking about when he said fire here. Because it could be another word for the Holy Spirit, because like Acts, right, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they've got the little flames, if you've read the book of Acts, above their head, all right, it could, and, and the Holy Spirit refines and sanctifies, and so fire seems a purifier. could be that, it could be that. Or it could be speaking about judgment for non-believers, just as verse 17 is when he talks about the winnowing fork and the wheat and the chaff. He could be saying that while believers are eternally baptized with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, non-believers will be eternally baptized in fire at the moment of their death. Because verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the great J.C. Ryle, 19th century Anglican, <clears throat> commenting on this pas- passage uh, a couple hundred years ago, put it like this. <clears throat> believers, and un- <clears throat> believers and unbelievers, holy and unholy, converted and unconverted, are now mingled in every congregation and often sit side by side. It passes the power of man to separate them. False profession is often so like true, and grace is often so weak and feeble that, in many cases, the right discernment of character is an impossibility. The wheat and the chaff will continue together until the Lord returns. But there will be an awful separation at the last day. The unerring judgment of the king of kings shall at length divide the wheat from the chaff and divide them forevermore. The righteous shall be gathered into a place of happiness and safety. The wicked shall be cast down to shame and everlasting contempt. In that great sifting day, everyone shall go to his own place. We need to behold our God. He holds the power of heaven and hell in his hand. Like John's message here is heavy and it's hard and it's to sober up. It's to wake up and realize you're going to be dead someday. And there's wheat and there's chaff and Jesus is what makes the difference. And on that great day of judgment, your cultural Christianity and your superficial Bible Belt religion will burn in hell with you if that's say that to scare you, but I do say that to let the Bible scare you, because it's so clear. But verse 18 tells us that this is good news. There's many other exhortations he preached. Good news to you. Well, how's that good news? How is hearing that happy story good news? Here's how it's good news. You're not dead yet. It's good news because you're here today to hear this warning just as John's hearers were there in his day 
to hear the warnings he was given. Like, it's not by accident. Like, if you're, God, if you're not a believer, you're just culturally kind of around the things of God. God's drawing you right now. How do I know? Because you're here. Look back at verse 7 real quick. And then we'll be done. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Look at his rhetorical question. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of God, from the wrath to come? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And the answer to that, the reason that they had come out to hear this warning was because God was drawing them. God was wooing them. God was saying, come home. God was inviting them. God was at work in their heart. Who, why else would you go out into the desert to see some crazy dude in camel fur eating locusts and honey tell you you're a brood of vipers? God's at work. He was drawing them. He was inviting them. And it's the same for all of us in here this morning. For my non-Christian friends. God is drawing you in. Again, the fact that you're here this morning to hear this message proves it. He's drawing you. He's wooing you. He's giving you a warning and saying, come home. Come to me. The way has been made open for all flesh. Valleys are filled. Mountains are, brought, are made low. Crooked ways are made straight for all, so that all flesh can see my salvation. Come to me. For those of you who are merely culturally Christian, but have never truly repented and believed the gospel, God's inviting you home. In His love, He's warning you about your predicament. There's wheat and there's chaff. And right now, the sad thing is you think you're wheat, but you're actually chaff. And He's saying, but you don't have to be. You're not dead yet. There's time. Repent. Come home. And then for those of us who, who are legitimate believers, God's calling you to repent and to crush and pulverize all vestiges of superficiality in your life. He's calling you to self-examination. Am I bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Am I a changed man? Am I a changed Woman, am I continuing to be changed? Am I growing in love and joy and peace and, and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Am I beholding God as He truly is or as I want Him to be? And where we've failed at these things, we all have. All of us. Run to the mercy of Christ. And we beg his forgiveness. We ask for his help. And he picks us up and he dusts our metaphorical bottoms off like a baby that's learning to walk. And says, Go again, child. I love you. I'm with you. But the axe is laid at the root. of your apathy.
Father, I confess personally that I do not even realize the depth of my sin. I do not even realize how dark I am, though a believer. I do try to commend my dunghill. I do return to my vomit. Oh, Christ, forgive me. Forgive me. And help me. Father, I pray for my friends in here who are not yet believers. Whether they know that they're not, or they're culturally Christian and kind of have this pseudo-idea that they are, but there's no fruit. Pray, Lord, that that you would stir their hearts, that you would open their eyes, and that they would repent and come home. And I pray for all my friends in here who are genuine believers. I pray, Lord, that we would never have an arrogant presumption on your grace and live in a way that, well, I'll be forgiven if I'm good. We would not presume. We would rest in your grace and we rest in your persevering of us. We would not presume on that. And so, Father, in this room, there's people, all of us, every single person, has things in their lives that have us broken, have us torn up, have us stressed, have us beat down, have us worried and anxious. And we have things that we need to confess and repent. I pray in in these next few moments to come that wherever we're at and whatever we're doing, we would do just that. And it would not be a momentary thing where walk out the door and we forget about it, but that we would continually repent and continually be run over by the Mack truck of your grace daily to the praise of your glorious grace and the good of our own souls for our joy and your glory. In Jesus' name.